All right, so we're continuing our journey through Mark. We'll be, um, well, I'm going to do something kind of interesting, actually. I'm, I, it's a, this sermon's about Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. It's not really about those verses, but it's all about those verses. So if I wander far, far away from them, just remember we are coming back to them. Because sometimes, um, you, so for me, it's, I, I have to go wandering all over the Bible uh, to understand uh, the verses I'm talking about. And so hopefully uh, my thread of thought uh, works for everyone. <laughs> Don't worry, I will make sure I tell you where we're at so that you, we can all stay together on the path. But before we begin, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this worship service that we're called out of the world um, to gather around your table and to hear you speak into our lives. Um, given this opportunity uh, to have your ear to draw near to you, uh, you are a God who is present. You are a God who is um, always with us. And we pray, Father God, that uh, we thank you um, in this prayer that we can have an opportunity to come before you once a week and really recognize um, how we live. And that is we, we live before your face all week. And we thank you for this reminder. We pray that as we are here that you would um, let that truth sink down into us, that this would become a pattern for the way that we live our lives. I pray, Father, that you would work through these words of, um, that I have arranged mightily in this congregation. I pray, Father, that your spirit would come and that you would give us understanding, that you would give us conviction, that you would give us comfort exactly as each of us needs. We thank you for your word and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what is the role of a prophet in the New Testament? Acts talks about prophets. There are prophets in the New Testament, but what role do they play? In fact, what role does a prophet play in the modern church? Um, I, we have a list of officers in the church. Prophet is not one of them. I'm not going to, this is not a sermon about how I think there should be. But what role does the prophet play? As we turn, uh, turn with me to James chapter 5, verse 10, we begin to understand a little bit the role of a prophet. James chapter 5 Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As an example, as an example. Now, what we have to do is be very careful here, because the prophets in the Old Testament did some very strange things. Isaiah um, was ordered by God to walk around naked for two years. Uh, he went around butt naked for two years. Uh, if you want to understand the point of that, read Isaiah. That would take us too far afield at this moment. Ezekiel, uh, the prophet Ezekiel, was made to, uh, he made a little tiny design out of dirt of the city of Israel with earthworks, and then he laid on it for 360 days. And he was, God was making a point. Uh, and then what, what he actually had to get up and, and turn and lay on the other side, like God was flipping him like a burger. Um, here, lay on this side, lay on that side. Jeremiah, this is one of my favorite ones, he was commanded to buy a loincloth. Okay? He, he bought a loincloth and was told to wear it without washing it. Then he was told to bury it in the desert. And then after a while, he was told to dig it up. And, he said, and God says, behold, that is how unclean the Israel is I wear around my waist. <laughs> Seriously, think about that for a moment. right? Here, have a dirty loincloth, and that's what it's like to wear Israel. So this is how cults get started. Okay, I come up here and I say we should imitate the prophets and you got all these weird things. This is not what James is talking about. 
Okay, and, and a, a lot of Christians have been misled by that kind of nonsense, right? Oh, do what the prophets did. And you go back and you look at what they did, and they did some crazy things. Um, and part of all of these odd examples is, is an ex- overall example of what I was talking about last week. I don't think most of us have heard those stories. We've all heard the verses in Isaiah about uh, Christmas, right? Around, come around Christmas time, we all hear the book of Isaiah quite a lot. But did you, have you guys ever heard that he was told to walk around naked for two years? Why would God do that? That does not seem to jive with our puritanical sensibilities in the modern church. But luckily for us, that is not what James is talking about. Uh, that is a conversation that could take us quite a far afield. I, I suggest you look into it. Look into those accounts. Those are quite strange. Luckily for us, both John, Mark, and James give us some parameters to apply this principle to our lives. We are to take the prophets as examples. But it's not in the pageantry. It's not in the pageantry. Now, be sure, John, Mark means for us to have a particular prophet in mind. Whenever uh, anyone says this, they have a particular prophet in mind. James has several prophets in mind. We're going to come back to that. John, Mark also thinks that we should imitate a prophet. And he has a particular prophet in mind. So if you turn to Mark chapter 16, Mark chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. This is what um, happened after Christ was resurrected. Mark 16, beginning in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of the, to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Someone rebu- rebuking the people of God, calling them to repentance, and then giving them the command to go out and to preach the good news about Jesus Christ and to, and to preach baptism. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, there's a reason. Mark begins his gospel this way, with just such a character. Jesus says, this is what I want you. I want you to go out and be a herald in the world about the good news of Jesus Christ. And many of us wonder, well, what does that look like? Well, you turn back to the very first chapter and you find a herald of the Lord Jesus Christ doing exactly what it is we're supposed to be doing. If you turn to chapter 1, go to verse 4. It says this, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the the differences between the baptisms. We're not going to get distracted by that right now. But what is he doing? He comes before Jesus arrives, and he's doing exactly what it is that we're told to do in the Great Commission. Preach Jesus, tell them who who he is, what he did, what he's going to do, and, and tell them to repent of their sins and to be baptized and to turn to him. By introducing his gospel with an account of the ministry of John, Mark recreates for his readers the crisis with which John confronted all of Israel. It is not enough to know who John was, historically. What is required of the reader is an encounter with that summons to judgment and repentance that John issued. 
John goes out to Israel and he preaches the word. And they, are, they have to make a decision about what he's saying. John Mark writes it down, and the readers of this gospel also have to make a decision about what's being said. Then it turns out at the end of Mark, we're told to go with that same message out into the world and, and to put it to people. Repent of your sins. The mighty one is coming. Make way for him. He is coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And, and what we are to do is to give people that option, right? That, that's what we do when we're proclaiming the good news. We're telling people about the other option, <laughs> the, the way, the other way to live, unlike the way that they're currently living. So you see this pattern here. This is what um, Peter actually was a disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Jesus. So then he goes out in Acts chapter 2. I know we're jumping around a lot, but just bear with me. Did my voice crack? Sorry about that. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Okay, and so Peter, who followed John and then follows Jesus, he understands this pattern. Okay, in chapter 2, verse 14 of Acts, we see Peter's very first sermon that he ever preached. And this is, this, I'm going to just jump through it real fast. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So he's clearly gone out and he's obeying what the Lord said. He's with the other eleven, just like Jesus was. He says, go out and preach. And this is what Peter says, okay, yes, sir. 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Just like Mark, he starts his gospel message quoting a prophet. There is clearly a pattern developing here. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. If you go over to verse 37, it says, Now they, heard the, now they who heard this were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Does there seem to be a theme? Does it seem like the messages that James and John Mark and Peter, they're all the same? Make way, clean up, get ready. The mighty one is coming. And how are you going to know that he's come? The spirit. When the spirit comes, you know he's come. Because we're not walking around with Jesus, right? We're not following him around in the first century saying, hey, where are you going? Let me go too. He, he, he has done his work and he has ascended into heaven. But that does not mean that he has left us. That does not mean that he's left us. I, I, Mark is very clever because he does not explain what he means. He, simply, he has in the mouth of John this message, the spirit is coming. And the people who first read it would have said, oh yeah, this is true because it came. We were there on Pentecost when the spirit came. John was not lying. The mighty one came. And for all of us, it's exactly the message we as believers ha have received. We know that we, the power of God, the presence of God is with us because the Spirit of God is with us. Now, for those who don't know, we have exactly the same message Peter did and the, exactly the same message as John Mark, exactly the same message as John. Make way, get clean, the Lord is coming. And he is, isn't he? Now, he's either, you're not, you're not going to see him until he comes at the end when it will be too late, 
(laughs) Or you turn to him in repentance and baptism, and he comes now in power, empowering you to go out with the same message. See, this is, it's just a circular, glorious story. And where Jesus tells the same story, he never gets tired of it, and it's exactly the same. He converts a bunch of morons and idiots and self-righteous nincompoops, I'm going to say. I mean, because really, I mean, the prophets. If you go back and you look at the prophets, you look at the apostles, they're not unlike us. Unworthy of the message that they receive. And, and what he does is he puts his power in them by his spirit, and they go out and they do remarkable things. Now, when I was first a Christian, I thought, man, I, I, that's right, baby. Gideon is here. The judge of Israel is here. Because I thought, I, I got the story backwards. I thought I was converted because I was already Gideon. Right? But Gideon doesn't become somebody until the spirit of God descends upon him. And, and, and this is the message that we have. This is the message for you. This is the message for me. This is the message for our children. This is the message uh, for our spouse. This is the message for the world. And and like I said last week, do, do we ever not need it? Do we ever not need the reminder to go back to the wilderness and begin just like we began at the first? We never get that. That is never an old message for us. The office of the prophet in the Old Testament was superseded by the apostles in the New. Okay, there's a couple of things I want to clean up right out of the gate here. We don't have prophets in the, new, in, the, in the modern church the way they had prophets in the Old Testament. They were superseded by the apostles. It, it even ranks them, um, it lists them in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, but prophets are behind apostles. The apostles were the ones establishing the church of God Right? It, it went from the prophets establishing it in the Old Testament to the apostles establishing it in the New Testament. But even with the apostles there, they're still prophets. It, um, Peter quotes from Joel saying, we all are prophesying now. Now, what does that mean? Now, I, I, what I am, I'm not expecting is anyone to come up to me after church and be like, you know, I had this dream last night and I have a word from the Lord for you. Um, people have done that my whole Christian life. I, I don't really respond to that because that's not what I'm talking about. But you all have a prophetic voice. Dean did a great job of this about the priesthood. The church doesn't have priests. The church is a priest. It's a priesthood. All of you are priests. You don't have priests. You are priests. You don't have prophets. You are prophets. Okay. Now, please don't go walking around naked for two years. Uh, don't bury loincloths in the woods and then dig. Please don't do, that's not what we're talking about. Okay? <laughs> Just to be very clear, I'll say it again, that's not what I mean. The pageantry of it is not what I mean. John Frame, the theologian, explains that a prophet has the word of God in their mouth. The word of God is in their mouth. That's what makes a prophet a prophet. God gives them a message, he empowers them with the spirit, and they go out with a message to a particular audience. That's all the prophets in the Old Testament, That that is what God was doing. He was sending them with a message for a particular people. And he empowered them with the Holy Spirit. Now, there were not a lot of people who got, the, got to be prophets in the Old Testament. But the New Testament is a very different scenario. Here is the message of God. And you all own one of these, correct? Everyone has this, right? This is the word of the Lord. And we all have the Holy Spirit. We all have the message and we all have the Spirit of God in us. That makes us prophets. That makes us prophets. 
I, I, when I first heard this kind of thing, I, I, I mean, some people take the time to, we're small P prophets, not big P prophets. If that makes you feel better, fine. You're small P prophets. I don't really think you need to make that qualification. Um, I, I remember Mark Driscoll getting into a, a lot of trouble one time because he referred to himself as an apostle. And um, I mean, I, I was sitting there and I thought, well, that was bold, bolder than usual. Um, but then he came back the next week and, and, and said, oh, I mean a small A apostle. Like, oh, whatever, sells the books, man. So if you have to make that qualification, fine. But, but we suffer, suffer so much turmoil because we don't know who we are. You, you don't say, I'm a small s son of God, do you? I mean, nobody says that. You're not small d daughters of God. You're sons and daughters of God. You're priests. You're prophets. That should, I hope, bring some brevity to your life. That changes things a little bit. You have a message. You have the spirit. And there are people that you are supposed to be proclaiming this message to. The prophetic voice is this. You go into a wilderness and you cry out, make straight paths for the Lord. Repent. Be baptized. The mighty one comes. Make way. James is also very helpful because Elijah in his day, when he saw a drought in the, in, in, that turned the land into a wilderness, what did he do? He didn't just go out and preach at the rocks and stones. He prayed. So in a wilderness that needs water, which is right, James is saying something far more profound than it sounds like. The wilderness in which you're in needs water. It needs the dew of heaven. It needs the Holy Spirit to descend, just like what we saw in Acts. That spirit that came in power needs to come to the wilderness that you're in. And so you can go out and you can proclaim with the prophetic voice the message that I'm talking about. You can also get on your knees like Elijah because he has the same spirit that you do. He's of the same flesh, of the same nature, James says. What was different about him and you? Well, he was a prophet. Yeah, yeah so were you. Well, well, well he, had a, he had a special message from... Yeah, so you have a special message from God. God didn't listen to the prayers of the apostles and prophets and not yours. I mean, this is why the, the, fee, the faith of a mustard seed. If you just believed, if you just believed who you really are, what you couldn't do. You are not seers, you're not fortune tellers, you're not mystic predictors. I'm not trying to say that. Please don't get a crystal ball and set up shop out in the foyer there during the weeks telling people their future. That's not what I'm talking about. Four, uh, four weeks into this, I've got to excommunicate half the uh, people because they misunderstood the sermon. No? Okay? Again, don't bury loincloths in the woods. Mark 1, chapter 4 through 9. Let's look at that again for a second. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, let's read them again. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to go back. Let me read it differently. Let's read it slightly differently. Redeemer Church appeared, baptizing in the wilderness of Seattle, 
proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Snohomish and King County went out to them. Can you see that? Do you have the vision for that? Why not? Why not? All Jerusalem and Judea go out to them. All Jerusalem and Judea go out to them. That's, I don't think that's what John set out to do, but that's what he did. Do you know why? Because he believed in what he was preaching. He, be, he believed the proclamation that he was making. He said, the mighty one is coming. He's saying it with so much confidence, he's going to go out and he's going to say it boldly. And the response that he gets is magnificent. So, okay, all right, so we're going to just go out next week and we're going to proclaim to Seattle that Jesus Christ is coming, so they better make way. Well, that's possible. Jonah uh, didn't even make it a third of the way across Nineveh. It's a city that takes three days to walk across. He walked one day, and that was all the preaching it needed. But maybe, like Elijah, we're in a wilderness that needs a lot of rain. A lot of rain that's only going to come by prayer. The prophetic voice is dynamic. It's multifaceted. Get on your knees and pray that God would open heaven and pour his spirit out on this place. And then go out with the voice that God has given you, the message he's given you, and the power of the spirit that he's given you, and proclaim it. Sorry. So, let's talk about this word preach for a moment. On the day of Pentecost, Peter cited the words of the prophet Joel, who said that God would pour out his spirit on all his people, and as a result, your sons and daughters will prophesy. John preached. So isn't preaching done by ministers? Isn't preaching done by pastors? Isn't it done by elders? But there are 33 Greek words in the New Testament for preaching and proclaiming, and it doesn't really make it... The, the context tells you a lot about the word, and I think we assume a lot about the word. Preaching in our day is done here, right? I, I prep all week, I come up here, this is preaching. We don't really think about it any differently than that. But when you're proclaiming the gospel, it's a very dynamic message. I, I say all the time, the thief on the cross didn't hear it, he saw it. The thief on the cross was converted because the, the gospel was demonstrated to him. He saw it visually. Not all of the uh, activities can be described as formal public speaking. Once you actually go through and see how this word is used. In Acts 8.4, it says that all the Christians, except the apostles, went from place to place proclaiming the Messiah. Now, this cannot mean that every believer was standing up preaching sermons to audiences. Priscilla and Aquila explained the word of Christ to Apollos in their home, Acts 18.26. Paul calls all believers to let the message of Christ dwell in you richly and to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Every Christian has the prophetic voice. All of you. We should all be able to answer Satan's basic question. Did God really say? We should all be able to counsel and instruct from God's word, all of you, to anyone. Have you ever had to address your husband's anger from the word of God? Have you ever tried it? Have you ever tried to address your child's unbelief and their difficult questions with the compassionate understanding that Jesus has? Right? Does Jesus just throw a fit and be like, what are you doing asking me these questions? Get out of here. No, he sits down and he explains it to them. You all have the prophetic voice. And 
every one of you needs the prophetic voice in your life. This community outside of our walls needs the prophetic voice. No church should expect that all life transformation comes from the word of God, or I'm sorry, no church should expect that all life transformation that comes from the word of God is to arise strictly through formal Sunday preaching. We have put so much strain on just the preaching the word of God in this church that it's doing almost all of the work. But this is supposed to be the big message that echoes through the week in all kinds of other ways. But what we've done is we've put all of our chips on the table right here. Where's God? I don't understand. I go to church every week. I hear the word preached. Okay, well, um, that's a lot of hours in the week to not hear it otherwise, to not read it, to not listen to it, to not read about it, to not speak it to one another. When's the last time you quoted a Bible verse in your home? Now, I mean, okay, I get it. We had one over the fr- on the fridge for a long time. And it was like the only one we ever used because, oh, we're like, word of God, word of God. Oh, the fridge, yeah, really. (laughs) And I remember one time my kid saying, I don't think that applies (laughs) to the situation that you're addressing, Dad. Uh, Sure it does because, Jesus, I don't, whatever. We put a lot of strain on the preaching. And I mean, I'm not talking strain like I feel like I'm up here carrying a boulder. But we try to get a lot of life out of one message. A lot of life out of one message. That's going to create a very anemic body. Right? Try eating only once a week. (laughs) Try eating only once a week. I'm not going to try that. That's terrible. But if you were to try that, how, how long do you think you'd make it? Three weeks? But why do we live that way on the Word of God? Full of the Holy Spirit, we proclaim the gospel in word and deed, and the church fulfills its prophetic mission. By declaring that man's problem is sin and Jesus is the only cure, we fulfill the prophetic mission. To say that Jesus is the Lord of natural law and the dictionary and of genitalia and the family and of our feelings, we fulfill the prophetic mission. How often do we talk this way to one another? Get it all out of the way. Get all the trash out of the way. Get all the obstacles out of the way. Let nothing prevent you from coming to the Lord, hearing the Lord, seeing the Lord, speaking to the Lord. Every man, woman, and child of you, the word of the Lord should be in your mouth always. Your mom needs it. Your dad needs it. Your spouse needs it. Your kids need it. Your neighbor needs it. Other people in the church need it. You've got a telephone. We've got this mail system where you just slap 33 cents on a letter and you send it off and there you go, the word of God on its way. We make room for Jesus like we make room for the awkward cousin who showed up unannounced to Thanksgiving. Right? That's We're like, make room for Jesus? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, I think there's some space down there at the kiddie table. Have fun. We're out of wine glasses. Here's a sippy cup. And then the rest of the meal, we just hear him breaking the plastic silverware. Because we didn't really prepare for that guy to show up. So his work is very ineffectual. Charles Dickens said one time... um, uh, when, uh, when Satan comes to visit, we don't just invite him in, we give him the most comfortable chair. <laughs> I would add that we usually make him a drink and massage his feet, but that might be taking the metaphor too far. But we bear upon us the name of God. We bear in our souls, in our hearts, in our very bodies, the spirit of the living God. We possess his message. 
We didn't have to fight and bleed for this. Did any of you guys have to spend a lot of time down at the University of Washington Library translating this? Well, no, you just, it's easy to ignore because they just, you just go to the bookstore and buy one and then you put it on the shelf and you never, never open it up. You didn't even have to work that hard to ignore it. God is very kind. The prophetic word is make way, make room, burn your kingdom to the ground, rip up the, the sin by the roots, slay the idols. I, I'm not kidding. My prayer every, every day for everyone in this church is that before your very eyes, God would burn your kingdom to the ground. That he would rip the sin out by the roots. That you would know the power of his name. That you would hold nothing back. So let's turn now to James chapter 5. I would like to explain this, taking the prophets as an example a little more, so that we again can avoid some confusion. I do not want to go over to your house next week and find you building an ark in your backyard. (laughs) I know it rains a lot here, but that's not the message that God is sending you. James chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 7. The patient, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of, of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. There's that rains again. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Make way for the coming of the Lord. It's at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Calling one another out in, the, in your sin is not the same thing as grumbling against one another, by the way. just want to point that out. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. That sounds terrifying. I, one of my favorite memes recently I saw on Facebook was this picture where this atheist is arguing that only God judges me. And then the next frame is they realize that phrase. Oh, God judges me. That actually is not that. I don't want to make that argument. That's terrifying. The only judge you have is God. You don't want anyone to judge you ahead of that to let you know that maybe you're going the wrong way. Because in the end, the only judge you want to see is a holy and righteous God. That sounds, that sounds like a great plan. I digress. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You've seen how he's compassionate and merciful. Why did Elijah pray for rain to come? Because he knew, he knew that God was compassionate and merciful. Job never cursed God through the entire book. Do you know why? He, 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 he was in what would have now been like a really ugly blog battle with a couple of really bad theologians, and he maintains all along that God knows what he's doing, even though he can't see what God is doing. Job, who's lost his, his entire family, all of his earthly possessions, is, is in the vice grip, and he never curses God because he knows, even though it doesn't make sense right now, God is merciful and compassionate. I'm not saying go out and have a prophetic voice to the community because uh, queers better watch out. I'm not saying it because your wife better watch out or the kids better hide under the bed because you're going to really whoop them now. I got a prophetic word for you. It's called the belt. That is not what I'm talking about. We know that God is compassionate and merciful, and that is why we say the hard thing. 
You see the difficult circumstances. You see the unbelief. You see the brokenness. And you know that God is compassionate and merciful if it would just rain. There, there would be some relief. When we look out on the poofdom that we live in out here, the, the thing that should well up in our hearts is not hatred, but we should say, you know what these people need is the compassion and mercy of the living God. Now, when you tell them about the compassion and the mercy of the living God, they might get a little uh, upset with you about that because the compassion and mercy and love of God doesn't look like their billboards of it, of what they think compassion and mercy and love looks like. But w- with a clear conscience, where this ought to come from is the fact that we actually know his name, Jesus, and he is nothing but compassion and mercy. And that's why we want to go and proclaim him. The prophets didn't suffer because of their own sin, as uh, Job was often accused of. I'm saying he, he was battling with some terrible theologians. The prophets suffered because obeying God leads to suffering. He's very clear. They suffered because, because they obeyed the word of God. We, we suffer, and, and, and oftentimes we suffer because we're foolish, or we suffer because we are sinful, and we think we're suffering because we're Christians. But how much do we really suffer? Literally, really suffer anything because we're, we're, we're holding to Christ. Right? I mean, if you were to really get on Facebook and be, and, and be honest in a loving way, uh, but all those people that like my photos of my kid's birthday cake, they wouldn't be on there anymore. I can't have that. I have so many Instagram followers now, I can't lose them. How much skin do we have in the game is the question. How much does it really cost us to be believers? Does it cost you anything to come here every week? Does it cost you anything to own those Bibles? Does it cost you anything to cry out in the name of God? The prophets were highly privileged, sounds familiar, but not protected against the strains of life. They had a special place in God's plans as they spoke in the name of the Lord. Their privilege and their trials went hand in hand one with another. Jeremiah was hunted by the men of his hometown specifically because they wanted to stop him from speaking in the name of the Lord. Hosea was commanded to marry an active prostitute to learn what it was like for God to be married to Israel. That's a prophet for you. God says, hey, Hosea, you know, you know, you want to know what it's like to be me? You're going to go and marry this prostitute. She's not even going to stop being a prostitute. And when you have kids, you're going to name one of them unloved and the other one not my people. That, that's what it's like to be me. Now, what do you think that cost him? Do you think he was invited up to the palace a lot with his bride? Probably not. But did he do it? All of the uncomfort in his life was because God told him to do something and he obeyed it, no matter how crazy it seemed. Right? We, we think burying a loincloth in the desert is nuts. Well, there's a lot of people who think having more than two kids is nuts. There's a lot of people who think homeschooling is nuts. There's a lot of people, I don't know how many times I've been told, living on one income, it's just stupid. Like they're like, you just you don't seem like a very smart guy. Why would you why would you do that? You know, when you keep having more kids, it keeps costing you more, right? And and why do you keep burying this loincloth in the desert? Ezekiel did it because he was told to. I'm doing what God tells me to do. Now, at some point, it gets to the point where I I have learned over years to do that in such a way that it doesn't really 
right? Oh, I can deal with some dirty looks at Whole Foods, whatever. But we've all grown a little too middle class and comfortable because th this doesn't cost us anything. It's totally free. It hardly costs us our own sins to come in here, right? What do we really have to give up? What, what real dying do we have to do to ourselves to be a part of this church? The blessedness which came to Job was not a fairy tale ending in which everyone lived happily ever after. It was the objective of God from the start, above all, that Job would know God. He put Job through the ringer so that in the end he would know God. He would see him face to face. The scriptures say eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life isn't a place, eternal life is a person. And when you know him personally, that's what gives you eternal life. If we are going to follow the example of the prophets, then we must insist that when godly men and women get worked up, they ought to get worked up. Godly men and women have got to get worked up. That there is a way to do it in a godly way. This means that you do not lose perspective, that you do not lose sight of Jesus, that you do not lose sight of the goals that are set before you. It is possible for a referee to enthusiastically call out a foul without losing his temper and cussing a player out. <laughs> I played sports when I was a kid, and there were lots of referees who got on my case all the time, and they did it in a way that made me understand the game better, made me understand what I was supposed to do better. But what we have is a lot of people right, who hear a message like this, and now they're the referees out there making us all look bad, making God look bad. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about Fox News Christians, okay? I'll be honest. I'm not talking about the GOP platform. His mercy and his compassion, that is what causes us to go. And there's a, go, a way to go out and speak honest words about who he is and what he expects of us because we know he's compassionate and merciful and it's going to tick a lot of people off, but there's a way to do it where we don't lose our souls. It's possible to lovingly call out your wife or your husband, your children, your fellow believer. It's possible to mock unbelief. It's possible to pray for judgment. It's possible to share the gospel of Jesus Christ without losing sleep, without swearing under your breath, without being grumpy with your wife or kids, and without embarrassing the rest of us. Right? There's a, there, there's a kind of embarrassment that we should all avoid. And we know that angry, right, he's going to get on there with his crayon and write his angry letter to the editor and how dare you, let's blow up some abortion mills. That's not what I'm talking about. There is, however, a God is who he says he is. A man is a man. A woman is a woman. This is what submission is. This is what I'm called to do. This is what a man looks like. This is what a a faithful family looks like, and we should be able to do that and not be embarrassed about it. We think we're avoiding one kind, but we're avoiding all kinds of embarrassment, all kinds of discomfort, all kinds of, of struggle, because what we want is middle-class respectability. It doesn't cost us anything. The Puget Sound needs this voice. It needs this voice. The voice that says Jesus is king, that his Bible is true, the voice that calls men to act like men, the voice crying that Jesus is God and not the multitudes of idols that the culture fawns over and whores after, the voice around which an entire community is built together in love 
for Jesus doing his work in this hellhole of a city. This is a wilderness, my friends. This is a hellhole, though. If you go out there, it's not unlike an upper level of hell. And and, and all they're going to do is descend further into it unless somebody stops them. Israel didn't know it was going the wrong way until John went into the wilderness and told them so. And what Seattle needs is someone to go out and tell them so. Oh, you mean preach now? We are going to open churches? I've already explained. No. Go out and live like Jesus is the king. Like this is a man and this is a woman. Go out and live who he says, be who he says you are in the power of the Holy Spirit and do it boldly. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. So why are you being defeated by sin and by the world? Why are you fleeing in fear like Israel before Goliath? Because you are fighting in your own strength. Because you don't believe that Jesus is Lord. Stop pandering for middle-class respectability and friendship with a world that hates you. Stop selling your birthright. Stop whoring yourself with the spirit of the age and with its sins. Declare the truth in word and deed, no matter what you suffer for it. We have a phrase in my house that I learned a long time ago, speak truth to power. I, um, Doug Wilson says somewhere, you know, the, the boys in, his, in some homes never stand up because dad's sitting on them. <laughs> That's hard to hear. What, there is a hardness here in what I'm talking about, a, but it's more like steadfastness. It's more like I'm holding on to Jesus who's the rock. That's the hardness I'm talking about. Please, please do not go home and browbeat anybody. But does your wife know how to speak truth to power? Does your wife, is she a daughter of the living God? Is she a prophet? Can she look in your eye and say, listen, this is your sin, buddy. And here's the word of God, and you should repent. And not only that, you should repent in front of the kids, and you should probably call so-and-so, because what you did was not accepted. Can your wife say that to you? In circles like ours, we wonder why some of the women, as they get older, become mousier and mousier. We wonder why some of the boys will never stand up. It's because we're sitting on them. Why won't the young men in the church grow up? Because we're sitting on them. Why can't, uh, are there more opportunities to serve? Because the people who are, who are doing the serving, the people who are leading it, are sitting on everybody. There is a hardness here that I'm talking about that is the hardness of holding on to Jesus Christ. He's the message. He's the word. What does your wife need to hear, your husband need to hear, your kids need to hear, your community need to hear? What do people in this church need to hear? Are you willing to bleed for it? Are you willing to die for it? Is it going to cost you something? Absolutely. Absolutely. But when did that ever matter? When was that ever the thing that Jesus said, hey, go and do what you got to do unless it cost you something? He said, no, sell everything. Get everything out of the way and follow me no matter what it costs you. That's the prophetic voice. That's the voice you need in your homes. That's the voice we need in this church. That's the voice that this community needs. And, and, and we'll go back to Mark. The mighty one is God himself. He's coming. He's coming. It's going to be terrifying unless you are hidden in him. Unless you repent and turn to him and hide yourself in him, it's going to be terrifying if he shows up. But, but, 
If you hide yourself in him, he will pour his spirit out upon you. And then who can stop you? Who can stop you? If the spirit of God rests upon you, the power of God rests upon you. And in him, we can do all things. With him, nothing is impossible. With him, all it takes is the faith of a mustard seed. And so are we willing to believe that? Are we willing to proclaim it? You have the message. You have the spirit. You know that he's with you. You know he's merciful. You know he's compassionate. And so turn to him. Turn to him, and you will see all of the pain, all of the suffering in a new light. And you will know what it's like to be a prophet. And you'll know what it's like to know him. Turn to him and be saved again, whether you're baptized or not, whether you have done it a hundred times or not. Turn to him and turn away from the world and be emboldened by his spirit to go and be who you are, prophets of the living God. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us courage and fortitude to believe the promises that you've made to us. You are the living God. All power on heaven and in heaven and on earth has been given to you, and you are with us always. You are at hand. And I pray, Lord God, that we would delight in you, that we would turn to you, that we would proclaim you to our children and to our spouses and to our communities, that we would proclaim you to one another, that we would not live in fear, that we would not kowtow to the spirit of the age, but that we would be emboldened by our, in our repentance, that as we, are, as we humble ourselves because you allow us to, Father God, we pray that we would cry out to you, you would fill our mouths with cries of mercy, Father, and that we would feel the power, the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I pray for everyone here, Lord, that they would turn to you, they would turn from and repent and turn from the world and turn to you and feel your power. And they would be bold and loving and gracious and compassionate and merciful, just as your son is, in whose name we pray. Amen.